Hi, I'm Steve Clemens, and I have a question. 20 years after the attacks of 9-11, how has the world changed? And how has America changed? Let's get to the bottom line. It was the biggest sucker punch in America's modern history. Al-Qaeda and its leader Osama bin Laden had planned and executed the hijacking of commercial airlines and killed almost 3,000 people on the morning of September 11, 2001. No one saw it coming, and no one could explain it. If bin Laden had wanted to sow fear and confusion in America, he had definitely succeeded. The U.S. response was massive and visceral, but besides decimating al-Qaeda and killing bin Laden, there's so much more that has happened in the past 20 years. In the so-called global war on terror, a.k.a. the global war on everything, America violated its own laws. It suspended habeas corpus protections for suspects. It kidnapped, it tortured, and rendered suspects to third countries to be tortured even more and to look at every global challenge through the lens of Islamic terrorism. Along the way, fortunes were made by those benefiting from massive spending on national security, like new weapons and drones, vehicles, surveillance systems, you name it. Even local police departments in the U.S. started to look and act like the military. Today, when civil liberties are threatened and the mass surveillance of phones and emails is just about normal, we shrug. So what did 9-11 do to America? And can America reinvent itself so that it's not chasing ghosts forever? Today, we're talking with political scientist and journalist David Rothkopf, the former editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine and host of Deep State Radio, a podcast on American power and its global impact. He's the author of Running the World, the Inside Story of National Security Council and the Architects of American Power. Previously, he managed the international advisory firm of former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, and now he heads his own, the Rothkopf Group. David, it's great to be with you, and thanks for joining us today. This is a somber time, a moment to sort of reflect on 20 years after one of the most major uh, attacks on the American psyche. Let's play a clip from President George W. Bush on what he said right after 9-11. The attack took place on American soil, but it was an attack on the heart and soul of the civilized world. And the world has come together to fight a new and different war. The first, and we hope the only one, of the 21st century. A war against all those who seek to export terror and a war against those governments that support or shelter them. David, that was President Bush's launch of the so-called global war on terror. And my question to you after 20 years is, what has that done to the American psyche in your view? Well, I think ultimately it's done a lot of damage. In the days after 9-11, President Bush responded as any president would. He did a number of things that I think were completely appropriate. He expressed grief. He expressed anger. He deployed troops to go out and get the people who had perpetrated the crime. But the global war on terror became an umbrella term that enabled the United States to much more broadly expand this than we should have. You know, I, I, I think there is a kind of a collaboration uh, that goes on between a terrorist and the victims of the terrorist. Uh, ideally, uh, in the eyes of the terrorist, the victim will overreact in ways uh, that support the terrorist narrative and weaken the victim. And that's exactly what happened with the United States. Uh, not only did we extend the war into Iraq, which was entirely unjustified um, and had grievous consequences, not just for Iraqis, 
but for America's standing in the world and cost um, uh, over a trillion dollars. We expanded the mission in Afghanistan beyond getting al-Qaeda. We extended uh, the global war on terror into many other countries. Uh, we, uh, as you noted in your intro, uh, set aside American values, uh, which undercut us in dramatic ways. Um, and, you know, 20 years later, it's clear, you know, we spent, I think, a total of $3 trillion, thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands of other lives. Um, and, uh, you know, the, a great deal of damage has been done. If I can just put a button on it, though, I, I think we can end in a more optimistic place. I think President Joe Biden recognizes that it's time to turn the page on the past 20 years uh, and time to reset our priorities and uh, begin to undo some of the damage that was done. Well, I want to I talk to you about President Biden. I want to tell our audience you had a very powerful op-ed recently on this subject of overreaction uh, and, and the lack of resilience in the United States um, after terrorist attacks that ran in the Daily Beast. But before that, go back to 1997. The CNN did interviews with Osama bin Laden uh, and, and Zawahiri, and they both were very overtly open about the fact that they thought that they could attack the United States and that they could, like a playbook, get America to overreact, to undermine its own place in the world, and thus create the conditions that would, that would allow them to recruit more and to look legitimate in the eyes of people who have grievances around the world. And so I guess my question to you is, the CIA knew what bin Laden was saying. Our national security establishment knew what bin Laden was saying. Why has it been so difficult to stand resilient against the efforts of others to hijack us and make them do what we want to do? Uh, because that's what you're saying. You're, you, you were warning about this right after 9-11. You warned it again about it again just in your recent op-ed. Why has this country failed to basically say, we know what you're trying to do and we're not going to do it? Well, I, I think it's hard to do. You know, I, I, I think the reality is that, um, you know, 9-11 was a deeply uh, devastating blow to the, to the psyche of the country. Thousands of lives were lost. There was a lot of pain. Uh, and it was natural um, to, to want to react, uh, you know, in a way that was proportional to that. Um, but, of course, it goes further. And, you know, we live in an era in which our media um, uh, tends to heat up the dialogue rather than cool it down. It once took days before a story was reported uh, and reached the general public time for things to cool down. Now everything happens in an instant. You know, I think one of the contributing factors to 9-11 and our reaction was Fox News was founded in 1996. MSNBC was founded in 1996. Google was founded in 1998. The American people around 2001 passed 50% internet penetration. Uh, this was a different kind of political atmosphere, and ideas could catch fire more quickly. I would point out that since then, it's gotten even harder, uh, and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook uh, things that contribute to that all came 2004, 2005. Instagram came in 2010.
Look, I once interviewed former Senator George Mitchell, not only about um, the Israeli-Palestinian situation in which he had some responsibility at that time, but the broader Middle East. And he said that the unresolved issues in the Middle East were so big, so deep and tectonically uh, complicated that America ought to just stay away from the region, that the, that the so-called Sam Huntington clash of civilizations was inevitable if we got involved, and we ought to just, you know, say, give us a call in 400 years. What is your view on these tensions in the Middle East? Are they, are they the kind of tensions America can be engaged with, or ought we, uh, should we withdraw, uh, keep our powder dry, wait for the Middle East to resolve its own issues and, and be on the sidelines? I don't, I don't think we should be on the sidelines, but I don't think the only option we have is to intervene militarily uh, or, you know, try to do nation building. Uh, when we do both of those things, we have problems in the region. We have diplomatic tools. We have economic tools. Uh, we have the ability to work through international institutions. We have the ability to work with alliances of like-minded countries there on the ground. And I think we should do all of those things as any other internationally engaged power would. Uh, I do think, you know, one of the things that's happened um, in the course of the past 20 years is we learned uh, the cost of mistakes of, uh, of the kind that we made, whether that's unilateralism or, or nation building, as I indicated earlier, uh, American exceptionalism even. I, you know, it was quite striking earlier in this year when Secretary of State Blinken gave his kind of uh, first address as Secretary of State, and he talked about an America that was kind of post-American exceptionalism. He talked about an America that was uh, more uh, humble, that was more willing to engage through international mechanisms, that was more willing to listen, uh, that was more willing to approach other countries as peers. And I think, uh, you know, if there are positive uh, consequences of the past 20 years, it is that those things are lessened learned and this is an administration that has learned those lessons. So how does it take those lessons, David? And I'm, and I'm uh, you know, I believe that you're sort of have something on, you know, the, the, your, your thumb on something very important. But I think a lot of the world looks at that as a function of American weakness, of, of, of weakness after the moment, the failure in Afghanistan. Uh, and that now we're willing to listen to people because we've been beaten down. The Chinese talk about it. Well, America's in, you know, a period of strategic contraction from the world. How do you turn that around? You're an expert in this. You're a pro in Washington. And turn that into a position of strength and enlightened policy as opposed to something that looks as if we're just basically tucking our tail and walking away. Well, I don't think it's strategic contraction. I think it's ending irrational overreach. Uh, and I think that, you know, there is a way to step away from uh, thinking the U.S. military was the solution to every problem, thinking the U.S. was uniquely able to impose its will on the rest of the world, uh, uh, you know, and getting to a place where we assume a role, as other great powers do constructively, uh, working with them, um, uh, standing up for our values where we, we must, defending ourselves where we must, um, but not overreaching, not trying to remake the world in America's image. Um, and, and, and I don't, you know, I mean, Joe Biden's been advising, advising uh, you know, that we uh, embrace an approach like this for a long, long time. He advised uh, President Biden, uh, President Obama in, in 2009 
uh, to draw down in Afghanistan and refocused our mission then. Uh, this is not, uh, uh, you know, something that's recent. Uh, it's something that a lot of people have known was the right thing to do for a long, long time. You know, I, I know he has, and you and I have talked about it in the past, that, that you know, Joe Biden saw uh, Afghanistan as a black hole for money, uh, for loss of lives, and for not coming up with a winning solution in the end. Uh, some have described our Afghanistan departure as something that has given, you know, a lot of glee to China and Russia watching us with these problems. But, you know, I've been in the, in the wondering whether or not, you know, China is now saying, darn, you know, America is now no longer tied down in Afghanistan. It's going to have greater resources and attention to deal with other issues, including them in the world. Am I getting that wrong or is that how David Rothkop sort of sees it as well? No, I think that's more importantly than than what I might see it. I think that's how Joe Biden sees it. I, it's it's not an accident that we've pivoted from getting out of Afghanistan in the month of August to focusing in the month of September on uh, uh, investments that may total as much as four and a half trillion dollars into the United States in our infrastructure, our human infrastructure, and making our systems more resilient against. Uh, climate and fighting climate change and making our systems more resilient against cyber attacks and focusing on uh, uh, competitiveness. Uh, but, you know, it, this this is, you know, one of those hinges of, of history or at least of American foreign policy or domestic policy where the president of the United States is saying, we spent $3 trillion on feudal wars that damaged us over the last 20 years. I want to spend an equivalent sum of money investing in us so that we can lead again in the remainder of the 21st century and that we can face the challenges that we are sure are going to emerge over that time. Uh, that's sensible, strategic um, repositioning that, again, as I, as I said earlier, is long overdue. David, what about Guantanamo? Guantanamo is still open. Other presidents, including President Obama, tried to close Guantanamo. It was his central obsession of his White House counsel. They failed to do so. Um, Guantanamo is still there. You could argue, some people have argued that, that President Obama and his team uh, got very active in, in, in drone strikes because, you know, it was easier to do that than actually to begin to uh, continue to increase the population of those enemy combatants that were housed at Guantanamo. Is Guantanamo remains something that creates a problem for the sort of reset you're advocating for? Absolutely does. It should be shut down. You know, they were just undertaking, you know, the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed for the events of 9-11, and it's 20 years later. Uh, and, you know, all the observers recognize that this is a failed process. Um, uh, you know, we, we believe in, you know, the right to a speedy trial in our society, and we're not giving that uh, in this instance. Uh, Guantanamo is a black eye, just like Abu Ghraib was a black eye, just like um, uh, rendition and the use of torture was a black eye. And honestly, uh, I think the United States has made a mistake not only in keeping those things open and not addressing it, I think the United States has made a mistake in not holding U.S. officials who are responsible for violating our laws and our values and violating international law accountable for doing that. Because unless we hold people accountable for those kind of abuses, they'll continue. Let me ask you a question about how we deploy resources when we think about our engagement abroad, nation building. You said we have other tools, but I remember 
when Secretary of State then, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, was in her position, she launched something called the QDDR, the Quadrennial uh, Development and, and Diplomatic Review, to sort of look at how America does its diplomacy, how it does and engages in development. And one of the big bottom line findings of that report is that not enough resources were going into the tools of diplomacy and the tools of development, and many of those resources were housed and responsibilities were housed in the Pentagon. And even then, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates said, stop it. We need to give those resources to the State Department. So I want to ask this question about the militarization of everything, the militarization of our, of our engagement abroad, the militarization of, of development. I remember when, when uh, David Petraeus would talk about his captains that were deployed in Afghanistan, how they were essentially becoming the de facto mayors of towns and villages uh, throughout Afghanistan. And, and it just seemed to me something that was odd. And we've now seen how a lot of those resources have trickled down into domestic police departments uh, in the United States, that material, et cetera. How do we undo that? Because that seems to be like a big deal, that we can't just say, let's just do these other tools. They have to have resources. Well, I, you know, I, I think we have to undo it by, you know, recognizing the damage that it's done to us. You know, we're... Uh, discussing whether or not we should spend another uh, uh, seven or $800 billion on defense this year as every year. The big debate in the United States on defense spending is whether it goes up 3% or it only goes up 2% or maybe it should go up 5%. Uh, it's insane. Uh, the systems that we've got, many of which are, 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 are antiquated, uh, obsolete or not applicable to the nature of the future of conflict. Uh, the, the way that we promote people in our military is based on old models and modalities of fighting war. We don't even have doctrines for the next generation kind of conflicts that we'll have, like cyber conflict. When do you respond? How do you respond with force, if ever, to a cyber attack, et cetera, et cetera? Um, we need a complete reset, a zero-based look at how do we do defense in the United States? And I think you're absolutely right. One of the ways that you do that is, you know, just as you would with policing, is you stop saying that the military is the solution to everything, and you start re-deploying uh, those funds to entities that are better positioned to do it. We'd be better off if we spent more money on development assistance, on diplomacy, on economic aid that gives us leverage, on international institutions that assume some of the responsibilities that we've had. Uh, just as with policing, uh, it'd be better if police were not the ones doing you know, mental health counseling in the United States. It was actually people who understood how to, um, uh, and were trained as mental health counselors. And so um, I, you know, I think we need to rethink that. I think we need to do so urgently. Um, and until we do, um, we're going to continue to have um, problems because the tools we've got at hand will not be suited to the problems uh, that need solving. David, to come back to your essay for a minute, one of the things I've been trying to get my head around is, is the, um, you know, the positive political gains that fear mongers in this political system are able to generate, that they're able to win through fear mongering, you know, conspiracy theories, um, you know, looking at the worst of every situation. 
And, and I sort of wonder whether that has helped contribute to the deep divide in toxicity uh, in this country, which we saw in vivid display on January 6th in the insurrection against the U.S. Capitol. And that is a deeper issue of what's happening here in this country as opposed to what we're doing abroad. I'd, I'd love to just get your insights as you've got a foot in both sides of these of these issues, America's engagement with the world, but also America's engagement with itself domestically, what your thoughts are about undoing some of that toxicity, the conspiracy theories, the QAnon, the fear-mongering. You know, I think that's a very tough problem, Steve, and I, I wish I had um, an easy answer to it. I think what has happened in the United States is that we have uh, created tools to allow completely separate information ecosystems to evolve and uh, people seeking to exploit those differences in those ecosystems um, have, you know, effectively um, not just deepened the divide, but they've, they've created irreconcilable differences. And when I say people, I mean Fox News, OANN, the QAnon people, people in the GOP establishment who said, yeah, sure, it's fine if we deny science, uh, if it gives us political advantage. It's fine if we uh, deny history. It's fine if we embrace conspiracy theories. We will uh, uh, elect a man who lies 30,000 times as president of the United States. We'll adhere to foreign enemies if it helps us get elected. Um, uh, we'll uh, embrace countries that have values that are not our values, if it helps us get elected, we will lie to the American people again and again and again. And 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 you now have, you know, ha you know, the, the one of two leading political parties in the United States that is grounded in um, lies and deceptions and untruths and denial of reality um, at its core. This is not peripheral. This is not extremist views. It's at its core. Donald Trump is still the leader of that party. Mm -hmm. uh, the mendacity of others, from Kevin McCarthy to uh, to uh, Mitch McConnell, is 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 well known uh, to the world. And so, how do we solve that? Mm. You know, you solve it by educating people, teaching them to use critical reasoning, challenging. Right. Um, um, the lies and the deceptions whenever you have the opportunity to challenge them. Um, uh, but I haven't seen us make much headway on that. And I think to the extent to which we can't fix that problem, that will lead to decline in the United States, uh, just as the Republicans wanted to lead to uh, decline in, 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 in effective working democracy in right. our country. Uh, that's that's the strategic threat we face as a country that's far more important than any overseas threat we might see. Well, David Rothkopf, political scientist, journalist, and author, thanks so much for being with us today. Really appreciate your candid thoughts. Thank you. So what's the bottom line? In 1993, Harvard professor Samuel Huntington argued that the world was headed toward a clash of civilizations, that it was inevitable that the Western world and Muslim world would be locked in a perpetual state of conflict. Well, the actions of al-Qaeda in 9-11 and America's response to it definitely gave credence to this idea. But this dark prediction is not shared by everyone. Radicals will always exist, but both sides seem to want to turn a new page in relations between the West and the Muslim world. Twenty years ago, America couldn't resist the efforts by bin Laden to turn the country into one obsessed with terrorism. Could it happen again? 
Could a small non-state actor hijack the entire national security apparatus again? The truth is that many folks are easily captured by fear-mongering. We see it every day in American politics. My guest has confidence that Joe Biden can lead America in a different direction, but I'm not convinced. Sadly, the answer is really yes. The same type of reaction could happen again, and that's the bottom line.